guys what's up today's episode i am talking to devin pena 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 p-e-n-a i've known devin since 2012 and the story how we met is actually in the episode so i'm gonna save that for (laughs) that time but just to give you a little brief synopsis of who Devin is and I'm gonna start off with the most recent Devin is a registered architect and human experience design strategist she is proud to be considered one of the first 400 black women in the U.S. to become licensed she is the owner of an architectural practice as well as Afrospace she first envisioned this venture by asking the question, how can we design resilient, habitable, and protective spaces for black women? Afrospace, which will be launched this fall, this is on the website called Black Culture Weekly. Afrospace will be launched this fall. This means that we will continue to scale our virtual events while planning a mobile pop-up tour to hit the road in the spring. So that's her most recent venture. This interview is an hour and a half long, plus this intro, so hour, 45 minutes, maybe almost two hours. But I don't wanna spoil the episode for you, but I love Devin. She is such a sweetheart. And then after this episode, you will love her too. So here you go. Hi, Devin. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm doing good. How are you doing? I'm good. It's saturation here. I have my window open, but it's like right, it's right over here. Yeah, that's better. That's better. Oh, yeah. I need brightness up there. Yeah. Hi, Devin. <laughs> Hi, Melissa. Hi, so, mentor. Huh? Hi, mentor. Oh, I thought I ditched that title decades ago. Because now you're my mentor. You literally texted me, uh, Grant, this morning. It says, <laughs> I was like, apply. <laughs> apply. Just do it. Anything that's free and you get money to travel, I'm like, Devin. Yes. <laughs> yes. You're the one who put me on a lot of travel grants. Never got them. But I applied. Someday. Someday. But, but you know what? I, it was the Wheelwright Prize I applied to. I didn't get it, but because I made a basically a thesis, from that, I got to speak at Berkeley. So it's because of you, because I would have never did that. I would have never put those words together for living monuments if it wasn't for that. Yay. I've met how that string branched off the self, oh, that tree branched off the top mouth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have a general idea of what we're going to talk about. But since I know that you love to talk, I don't have really anything to. worry about so I want to start off how did we meet you and I met well it was online it was on LinkedIn because I was in fifth year and I was really frustrated I was going to NC State I had to represent my final project because I didn't at the final review of fifth year I didn't have enough print quota and money in general to produce the work that I put on my project, like that I put in the computer to like actually show. So they let me represent and like I borrowed people's materials when they were done with it. 
and all that good stuff. So I was just online searching in that process or it was right after, I can't quite remember. And I came up on this article that you were interviewed in and you, it was talking about why you switched from a PWI, predominantly white institution to an HBCU. And I had never really knew anybody who had the same experiences as me. There's one other girl I went to college with and architecture school with, but we were always in different studio cohorts and she was a year um, ahead technically, but was in the same studio groups. But anyway, didn't have anybody that really articulated that at, at, at least. So I really felt seen and I was like, this is the beginning of little cyber dev because I do this all the time now and this is how I make my connections. But this is the first time I ever was just like, let me search this person on LinkedIn. And I found you and I messaged you and I just kind of let it all out and told you all my Vomited friends. all over LinkedIn. Vomited all over that thing. Like, bleh. and you ripped me up and you were like, I hear you. Let's get you to the AIA. You need to go to the AIA conference in DC in 2012. So eight years ago, almost nine years ago. So I was broke still. Nothing changed from the studio presentation. <laughs> And I was like, I don't really know how that's going to happen. You were like, if you could leave, and this is like a movie, if you can leave tomorrow, I'll get you up here and you can stay with me and I'll get you at the conference. And I'm like, okay, how are we going to do that? And you were like, look up how to get up there. So I thought a train ticket would be cheaper than an airplane. So I sent you the train ticket, which I don't think it was any cheaper, but you bought it for me. <laughs> and I, and I took the train from North Carolina to DC and you picked me up with some other architect homies and with your like flock and we went to dinner or something and then yeah you took me in and got me into the the conference with your little strings that you know how to pull and I got to I think that first opportunity just like made me hit the ground running I was never really proactive or like confident to speak with firm owners even at like studio reviews I always felt like there was just, they would never even want to speak to me. But when I got there, I was like, I just got here. I'm here. Look at this. Uh, and I had just graduated. I was excited about it. So that was how I led conversations from there. Let me talk about my perspective on that. So I got your message and I was like, I can't believe this is still happening. I can't believe because I graduated in 05. And, you know, at the time, what, you, you graduated in 12? Yeah. Yeah. So seven, six, seven, seven years later, you're still feeling this way. I thought things will change. And so I was like, no, 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 this can't happen. You are crushed. You are defeated. You hate it. And I was like, no, we got to do something. And I wanted you to have the same experiences I have. Like, even though you didn't grow up the way I grew up and all that stuff, but I was like, no, like you need a network. You need to see people you need to be around other black architects. You need to see, uh, you need to see it. You need to see it, experience it. I didn't have a lot of money. And I told you like, listen, I don't have a lot of money, but I will do the best that I can to bring you up. And so I did. And I talked to people and they're like, oh yeah, sure. Just I was like, listen, if I had to, you know, pay like whatever I will pay, but you have to take care of this girl. We have to come together and surround you. 
and just make things happen. And from you picked it up from there. Like there was nothing that I had to do. I just had to make sure that the doors were open, but it was up to you to go through it. And by your personality, by what you wrote to me, I knew that you, you, like she got it. She, she's good. And you would just gravitate towards other people, people I didn't even know. And you started talking to, I was like, oh, she, I had to do that. You have that personality from the jump. You knew who you were. You just kept getting hit by all these bullets and it just knocked you down. And all you had to do is all, all you needed, I felt anyway, is, you know, someone to just, you know, Your chance on me. Take, take some, you know, or you can just offer a piece of platform because that's what you did, you know, and that was enough for me because I hadn't had that. I never interned in college, anything like that. Like, I just felt like it was always right out of my grasp, even though I loved architecture so much. It was just like the access was always just to, like, you know, just past my fingertips. And really, that was what activated that kind of fire in me. I think I came home, I remember on the train ride home, emailing, and I would never do this now because I'm just, but I got like a business card stack, like four or five inches tall. And I emailed every single one of those people personally on the way back. Like I was so just excited about being getting this kind of introduction and kind of welcoming into the profession so thanks <laughs> you're welcome i also threatened you too i was like if you come to my house and steal my shit you did not do I, that i, I sure you. did tell you i was like just don't come to my house and steal my shit because i didn't know I, you <laughs> i remember you made smoothies and you didn't make me one and you gave me like cheerios and i was a little hurt but i was like you know what i'm just happy to be here okay i'm happy to have a pillow and a blanket I'm sorry I didn't offer you a smoothie. That was really <laughs> rude of me. I apologize for that. To, you know, you threatening me, Melissa. I know. I did. I felt like I did. I, I was like, like I was kind of nervous. I remember thinking that, like, I could be crazy. I, I was, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, I just, at the time, I was, I was, had a breakup. Faith. Oh, okay. Uh, the, <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> you said faith? I was like, break up. I thought you were like, you know. No, I was like, I just broke up with a longtime boyfriend, and I was like, you know what, whatever. She, if she was a serious, I had two. I had two. That's crazy. I think that's what we kind of bonded on too, because I was going through a breakup right there. Oh my god, that was terrible. (laughs) Right in fifth year, at the end of fifth year, that was terrible. Oh no, that was awful. But I remember. But he used to take me to and from the studio. So I was like, you know, at four in the morning, it would come pick me up, feed me when I needed it. So it worked out, I guess, for the time being. So you ended up in architectural record. You had like a whole spread. And I was like, I was crying. I was like, look at her. She was the magazine. Do you, you did that? that though you did that you hooked yeah, me up with um oh my god what's her name i can't remember her name but they were looking for uh why the i remember the name was why the lack of black student architecture students and you made that happen because i didn't know i didn't i mean i guess because i could have made a connection but no i remember you emailed me with the lady or about the lady i can't remember but i reached out to her she reached out to me because of you 
Yeah. So that was my first feature. But I do remember at the conference, I met this like architecture headhunter and he said, visibility is so important. And that really stuck with me. So at every opportunity that I could get to kind of share my opinion and on what I've experienced, I felt like I would do that. And even with no experience in architecture, you know, I had experience as a black architecture student at a predominantly white school and I wanted to talk about it. Let's let's go back even further because I did an interview with another woman and she she's not an architect at all, but she was focused on justification and how it affected her. And she's from Fayetteville. And so and she's light skinned. And I was like, Are you K Verdian? Because I know a light skinned woman who um is from Fayetteville and she looked she eerily similar to you. And uh so she's like and I was like, what's her name? I was like, Devin. I was like, I think I know a Devin. And I was like, was she a teacher at one point? I was like, yes, she did do that. And then, and then <laughs> started talking more. And she's like, no, no, that's not her. And I'm not Kay Meridian. I was like, oh. Yeah, so my family's not even from Fayetteville. My mom moved us to Fayetteville when I was eight years old to get a job down there. And she actually, so she was the first person really to kind of use the internet to her advantage before I did that because she used to be in black voices on AOL when it was dial up in that chat room. That was her chat room. So she got a job through black voices chat room. <laughs> she, she sent us to Florida for the summer with my dad. I remember. And then at the end of the summer, she was like, we live in North Carolina now. So we never went back home. I didn't say goodbye to anybody. We went straight to North Carolina. From and home was Boston. New Bedford, but yeah. Okay, yeah. Boston. It's like about an hour and a half from Boston. New Bedford. Right. So you grew up in. So it's safe to say you. That's where Barbara Laurie is from, New Bedford. That's how I started connecting with her. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. She is from that area. So how was it when. So you you got dumped in this this military town. Like, how was. Oh, man. And then on top of that, we went, so we lived in Fayetteville, but we went to school and parked in North Carolina, which is, I mean, the first day of school, we had to stop the car on the way because there was a hog crossing the road. And (laughs) we passed, it's like tobacco field, cotton field, tobacco field, cotton field. And I actually have a really nostalgic smell. Like when I smell that, it's like really nostalgic going through like the wind passing, driving and stuff. But so we went to school in the cut. Like <laughs> my mom was the only black teacher there. There was black assistant teachers, but she was the only teacher there. And she experienced all kinds of stuff. But that's where I went to school when I first started. So it was like crazy culture shock because everybody, I couldn't understand me. I couldn't understand them. Like <laughs> Oh, they had that accent. Oh my goodness. Yes. So, and it's mostly it's black, white, and lumpy Indian is the the kind of makeup but it's a pretty low income area so it was just interesting to see like even like my mom being a teacher like we were the you know middle class people in that situation like coming from you know she had had got a house down there we were renting at the time we got evicted but that's another story for another day (laughs) we moved down the street my mom still lives in the house down the street that we got evicted from But yeah, North Carolina was very a culture shock. But I I was talking to my mom the other day because I think we wouldn't have had to struggle as much as we did if she were to stay around her support system. 
up north, like, you know, you could send your kids to your sister's house for dinner or whatever. So it would have been a lot easier on her. But it was something that she needed to do for herself with everything that was going on with like her dad, my, my grandfather passed away. And like, she just felt like she needed to change and getting away from just things. So she went through her own journey first. And I told her, I don't think I would have the depth of empathy and humanity and just how I see the world and creativity if it didn't, if I didn't start so young, like at eight years old, trying to understand a per- people who were entirely different than me. Because mm-hmm. even if people are different races up north, like they all sound the same, <laughs> like they all have that accent. So there's still like that level of, I don't know, cultural sameness. How did you pick architecture? I don't know. To this day, I try to think about it. I have no idea. Ever since I was seven years old, I wanted to be architect. I went from like, I think I was going alphabetically and I was like, archaeologist. And I was like, architect. And I was like, that one's good. And I just never went <laughs> That was it. <laughs> like that, that was, was like a book, basically, <laughs> of careers, and you just got lazy and just picked up. Like story of my life, most you understand. Like <laughs> story, but no, my mom, like she was like, oh, when you were on timeout, like I'm like, first of all, yo, you know, you ain't you know that got to time out. What is that? I don't even know. But she said I was in timeout. Apparently, maybe this was when I was very, very, very little. Cause yeah, because they can't beat you when you're. Right. That's, yeah. I don't know. I've never heard a time or an out. So <laughs> I don't remember that. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, maybe that's buried deep, but <laughs> so I was like playing with Legos and I made like a little floor plan and she was all impressed and she was like, Oh my gosh. So I don't know. There's different sources. I feel like, you know, I just, the way I stayed on it and I think everything was aligned by God, like how the high school program came up in, in middle school, they told us about it and they redistricted my high school. So I got to go, or my, yeah, so I got to go to the kind of the school that had the, what you would call now STEM program. Very, very good program. So I was lazy in there too, though. I mean, I got A's, but I didn't like any of the engineering stuff. It was just too technical for me. So even drafting was technical. It was an engineering drafting course, but at least to me, it was cool that you could move, you know, your mouse and make lines and that become an object that you're, you know, that you read, you know, that is printed in a book. So we would look at the book, it would be like a part of an equipment and then the measurements. And I I really like, like that stuff. Hmm. So going to a state school was the only option for you? Or did you think about getting out of North Carolina? Carolina? Yeah. Um, to me, it was like, well, so I didn't understand anything. Like, I did my own FAFSA. Like, I did all that stuff myself, like college stuff. Like, my mom could not be bothered with it. So, I, I, it was all me trying to figure out how to get into school. And I just knew that in-state was cheaper and out-of-state was more expensive. I did apply to a a school in Florida. I want to say it was Florida State. I cannot even remember. I don't remember the colors at this point. But, and I got a presidential scholarship, but I realized, I was like, well, that doesn't equal the amount of the tuition. And I probably would have got financial aid, but I didn't realize how that worked. So in North Carolina, the only two accredited architecture, the NAAB or NAB, are UNC Charlotte and then NC State. I'm like, I feel like I'm setting this tone because I remember the reason why I went to NC State instead of UNC Charlotte. So I got into UNC Charlotte, but then they sent another package. You had to reply separately to get into the architecture school. And I was like, that's too much. That is too much. I hate schools like that. You got into like, I applied for Syracuse Hmm. and I got into Syracuse and then I had to go apply for the architecture program. And they were like, 
well, I didn't get into the architecture program. So instead they put me in this information technology track. And I was like, how'd you get from IT to architecture? So I was just, no. That- yeah, but also oh, NC State had was based in design and I am more, I wanted that, like the school at uh, UNC and I mean, I'm sure, you know, all of them are based in that kind of like Bauhausian knowledge, but I just was really attracted that it was nestled in the school of design. So there was like graphic design, industrial design, art and design, landscape architecture. That was really cool to me. And then my my counselor through the STEM program, it was Integrated Systems Technology Academy. Her son was at the architecture school there. So I had a connection of like, she helped me to figure out like, oh, you, I actually need a portfolio. I didn't know that. I didn't know any of that stuff. So she helped me out with that. So they didn't want the stuff from drafting class. They wanted art. So I took art course my senior year. How was this course? So how was your first year? Of architecture school? Yeah. Well, so when I was there, we did a full year of just design. So it's general design. And then after your first year or after your first semester, you go to your discipline. So it was, I mean, I loved it. I met my best friend who is my best friend till this day, Eileen McDonough. Shout out. (laughs) That was my girl. She introduced me to hummus. I told her, I was like, you introduced me to hummus. I introduced you to cocoa butter. Even though hummus is from like, yeah, anyway, you know. (laughs) Anywho, yeah, so it was good. The the design, the design kind of freelance, just figuring out all the principles of design and that stuff I loved. And then when I got into the the second semester of architect that turned into architecture, my professor and I did not really vibe or gel very well I guess because I have a like a progress report from like that studio from a long time ago and it said like you know I'm this I'm that I don't know but I was just like I know I was not that kid like I'm not trying to be like I was the best kid but I you know I know because I remember she was like oh well you're not serious enough for architecture you should go to you know be an English major I see that you like to write poetry and stuff Cause I would have my stuff on my desk, I guess. And I was like, cause I had that, I was taking a poetry class for, for elective. And I'm like, what? Like I was 19 years old, you know, no, I was 18 years old. So it's just crazy that, or that age, a teenager, essentially, like you can, because somebody doesn't conduct themselves how you're used to, you, you can tell them that that's not the path that they should follow. So it was kind of difficult for me. And, and I, that was an awakening for me too, because our first project was to design something in a 50 by 50 by 50 box. It was for like scale and to understand that. So I didn't, <laughs> I just wasn't thinking, I don't know. I just, I literally designed a 50 by 50 by 50, but it was a box, like, <laughs> but I cut it and I put the little punch out windows. I made it into a church too, which I'm not embarrassed about it. Like I was 18 years old and that's what my frame of reference was. Like I've never cut or anything like that. I never touched a piece of basswood. I didn't know any of that stuff. So like these kids are coming out with projects that look like falling water and I'm like, what? <laughs> and <laughs> and they tore my oh my god, they tore me a new one. I remember they were so brutal, like <laughs> no type of nothing. So 
it was very like a rude awakening and that's when I started to think like oh my god am I can I really do this am I really supposed to be here that's 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 you know it's funny because you're not not like I had a lot of conversations with a whole bunch of people but that's common that's you yeah I say that's very common and students away from architecture well i mean the discouragement one and then secondly the whole mind frame that you have to think this way because i remember i was i did the axo in high school and i was the only person in that category and i did an apartment building but it was an apartment building that i'm used to seeing so it was a box with a pitch roof, punch out windows, you know, that was it. And then the layout was basically the apartment I lived in and I just mimicked the other side. And so it was more of a drafting exercise than a design exercise. Right. For me. And so they just was like, yeah, no. And we're going to give you third place. And I was like, I'm the only one in this category. Why are you giving me third place it it didn't make any sense to me and I was like what and now looking back I was supposed to design I was supposed to be creative with it do some funky things like like you're a 50 by 50 box you're supposed to yeah like go into it the planes and and the volumes and cut out and use void and all the things that you learned the first semester but I just didn't it didn't there wasn't a connection for that for me but I did my freshman year I had a professor Michael Paz wherever you are, Michael Paz, I mean, best design professor I've ever had, like ever. He was just, he was practiced. He knew about architecture. He wrote an architecture book with a, with an architect um, at my school that was published and we studied in school, but he was real. He would tell me at the end of the semester, he was like, what grade do you think you deserve? And I said it and I got that grade. And he was like, cause he didn't believe in grades. It was like crazy. But I mean, at the same time, it was really, uh, nur- it was probably the most nurturing to my design skills and, and confidence that I've had. And that was my freshman year. So I'm really grateful I had him. But he told me at the end, he was like, you know, over the summer, look at buildings, really look at them, like look at, you know, the bricks and look at the corners and how they come together and at the windows and things like that. Those are things that you're going to need to know and understand. So just start by looking at them and observing them and really taking it in. And he was like, you're not, he was like, are you sure you want to do art? And it wasn't like a discouraging way. He said, are you sure you want to do architecture? And I said, yeah. And he was like, okay, well, it's not going to be as easy for you as it is for a lot of other students. And I knew exactly what he was saying. This is like a, a old white dude. And I was like, okay, like I knew what he was saying though, you know? So I'm glad I, I had that, that first experience with him in design. And I think even now, like my leaning towards design and trying to like design no matter what, it's like, I feel like that is discouraged a lot through the profession because that's not in commercial architecture what is needed necessarily. And especially if you didn't come from Harvard or MIT or, well, maybe not. Yeah, well, you know, like a a more prestigious school with that background. But even so, like, I just, I always wanted to be a designer and, you know, somebody's like, everybody wants to be a designer. you got to, you know, be a project architect and a project manager and go that track and, or like a technical, you know, director, go that track. And I said, that's not what I want. What happened in fifth year? So my fifth year is where I really shine. So like my, at the end of my fourth year and I got into fifth year, cause you have to reapply. So I had my degree, it's a separate degree program. So I got 
my Bachelor of Environmental Design in architecture and then I was applying for my fifth year and I got in and I was like okay like they still want me here <laughs> something got it you know something means this it's okay and then I was walking around and going to looking at other our our studio you know was finished for the year and I was walking around and I saw master students presentations and I looked at the projects and a couple of them I was like you know mine are mine look better than that like <laughs> I was like, if I can, you know, if I can do work that looks better than the worst master student there, not, you know, not to say better or worse, but, you know, I think I'll survive here. And I got a confidence and in our fifth year, and this is just how our school was organized. That's when we really started to learn about kind of like the tectonics of architecture, like the structural and, and that to me, the practical you know, that was in our studio and we had to apply it to studio, like doing wall sections and, and understanding how materials come together. And that's what I loved because to me, that's design. And that, I, that clicked for me instantly for whatever reason. And I think that's why I went into building envelope later. Cause I really, I appreciate design, but I, I appreciate the kind of the end, like the ins and outs of design. Cause I don't, I'm not just like, Oh, design, like it's design is a science, you know, the science of design is important to me. So anyway, I was finishing that year and I told you I didn't have enough to print out, but we, we also did a three-fourth size model, like the really huge cutout of a model. And I was cool with the janitors and I was like, hey, can I use this? Because I didn't have anybody to, to help me bring my big ass model over to the, the rotunda where we had a review. And I asked if I could use their like little dolly and he said, yeah, so I've used it. And then your final push for your last project, you're up for days and stuff like that. So I got back and I still had my project on the dolly. And then I left, I went to sleep and I came back and my whole, my model was like broken. Like, and that's, you know, that's our big project that took us weeks and weeks to do. How did it get um, break? How did it break? Somebody took the dolly to use their own, but they didn't put any care into moving my project. They knew it was my project. Oh. And it was broken. I mean, I don't think it was intentional, but nobody owned up to it, you know? And I was, like, really pissed about that. And <laughs> I think it was just, anyway, I'm saying all this to say, I think it was accumulation over the years. Like, I did win a design award or a design project competition, and it was a design build. This was my sophomore Nope. It was when I crossed Delta. So this was my senior year. Okay. So yeah. So I won it. I was excited, but then we had to build it and the whole class, except for three other people in the class went to the other person because they took the top two to build theirs. And then only three of us came, or it was only four of us building together for ours. And we had to split costs and I couldn't, pay you know equal to the my teammates and I isn't I can't be like hey guys hey guys I'm poor so just so you know like I just I, I didn't do that I couldn't I don't know how to you know I didn't know how to talk about not having it so I think they thought I was withholding and it just was like really isolating because I didn't know or how, like how to articulate that I'm in need even to professors because that's how I got to represent fifth year because you know I'm like basically breaking down to my professor and he's like I did not know any of this like you should have said something da, da 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 and I'm like who when have you ever you know when has it ever been a warm or comfortable or you know secure enough relationship or just opening or environment that I felt like I could say something it hadn't you know it always felt like it was me alone so when I saw the article it was like being seen for the first time because you know it's intensive architecture never stops I, I stayed every semester I did summer school every year every year you know, to fulfill credits and things like that. It was incessant. So 
I think it was just to see somebody who had went through what I went through and I had no idea, like I had just finished this school and I didn't know what the profession would look like after going through an experience like that, you know, it was, it was like life, you know, a life vest almost for me or like something that was like, okay, I can continue in this. Here's this person that's <coughs> years, seven years, my senior doing it you know that means i can last another six or seven years how was your first job in architecture like your first architecture job because you moved right i moved to laredo texas <laughs> with a firm with you <laughs> my mom was like that's on breaking bad what are you doing <laughs> she's like i heard that name on breaking bad <laughs> like, <laughs> My first job after school was teaching high school. So Camille Jackson, the girl, the other black girl in architecture, her mom worked at a high school and she did home ec and they were looking for a drafting teacher. So she and Camille was already teaching high school at another dra school. So that was both of our entry point. And Eileen, my best friend, cause she took over my classroom when I got my job in Laredo. So that was all of our kind of entry point into architecture was through teaching high school drafting. <laughs> and I was just I would stay like I think school was from like I don't know seven to three and then I would stay from three till late and applying for jobs I applied to over 100 architecture positions through like the AIA career center and I think this is like before indeed and stuff I don't even remember but other you know other things where I could find jobs and that was before when you look for a job all you see is IT architect it was before all that happened so <laughs> It wasn't that hard to find, you know, positions and stuff to apply for, but I would never get interviewed. I didn't even get one interview, nothing. And, and I said, just, I prayed and I was like, God, I will go anywhere. I do not care. I just need to get my foot in the door. I want, I got an architecture degree to become an architect. I felt like I had a time limit on it. I felt like I would lose the momentum. So I just had to do it. And I got a call from, or like an email back for an interview, a phone interview about a job in Laredo, Texas. And so I got the job and I packed up my car. I didn't even have a bed in when I was teaching. I was sleeping on the floor. So I didn't take much to pack up my stuff in, in my like 98 Chevy Cavalier. And I drove down to Laredo, Texas, right on the border, baby. So everybody's Mexican there, like literally everyone. And you know, I'm in the you know, I'm in that that spectrum of <laughs> brown and kind of like middle of the road. So yeah, yeah. my last name happens to be Pina, which looks like Peña. So everybody pretty much thought I was from there and I didn't speak the language, but it was like studying abroad again, honestly. It really was. <laughs> it was awesome. My coworkers, I love my to this day, we're close they took care of me man they really took care of me they're like a family to each other and they kind of let me into that so it was awesome yeah do you think that there was a point where you had like a big break or like an aha moment in your career yeah did, did would, you have one like i don't know i would say getting the job that we just talked about only because like it made me feel valid like if i could work if somebody is like you're valid you're good enough to work at an architecture firm at that point at being you know what is that 22 23 years old and it was like wow like this means i can become an architect you know because school is like okay i got through school but i was barely i bar barely <laughs> got through school so the fact that somebody hired me to be at a firm like that was really big for me and and i think i have had several i think like every i mean i have aha moments all the time man like 
I don't know, like I, so from Laredo, me and my friends from Laredo would visit Austin, which is like a five hour drive, I think, or four hours to go to South by Southwest and to go to like little stuff and stuff. So they have friends there and I saw a black girl and I was like, black girl. <laughs> like, I love my Mexican people, but I ain't seen a black girl in like 10 months. <laughs> So I started talking to her and her husband worked at a general contractor and they were looking for a project coordinator. So I applied to that and I got it and my salary jumped from, I think I started at 30,000, this is 2013, to go to 51 and I was crying, like, <laughs> like weeping, crying with my coworkers who were at the office. And they were like so happy for me. I just remember like my Victor and Edna. But anyway, yeah, so it was always just that somebody believed in me to take it to the next level of my career. That was always like, like, who, me? Like, <laughs> but I think when I started to really understand the profession as in a whole, and it really helped go into contracting to see that. Because I think when you're in architecture and you only have experience in architecture, you can get fed the Kool-Aid that... You have to do, you know, that, you know, CA is coveted and you are not, you know, you don't have any experience until you know what CA is about. And it was like, what is CA? Like, what is construction administration? What is that? This is just how it was back then. I just feel like there were certain parts of access and architecture that you weren't allowed to see at all. It was like the Wizard of Oz, like, and it was like, you know, and it kept you, it kept you being like, okay, I guess I deserve this underpaid salary because I don't know everything about architecture. And then going to construction, I'm like, <laughs> like these people pay more and I can see it from their point of view. And it's practical stuff that I'm doing these change orders or processing these change orders and these, you know, submittals and all the things that, and, you know, RFIs, all that good stuff and seeing how the building is getting built and how problems are getting resolved in the field in real time, seeing what these details actually look like in, in the construction. And we did do a lot of interior work, but there were some ground up projects too. So it was just good exposure. And I think it gave me a lot of confidence because that firm, our construction uh, company, they were very transparent about their contracts and we had budget meetings every week where how much this project was, you know, being built, how much came in, what percent of construction has been completed, what they're going to, you know, what they're estimating for this new project and why and that kind of stuff. So it was really interesting to see it. And then when I got back to architecture, I'm like, oh, I see what y'all are doing. <laughs> I was like a free, you know, a free, a new Freeman or something. I was like, I see the system. I get it now. I see this little caste system of <laughs> I'm not a peon okay <laughs> anyway but yeah I think having the cumulative type of experience has definitely allowed me to in different types of firms like I went to after that I went to an affordable housing firm and seeing that their projects aren't necessarily like they at the end of you know the ones that they work with with a community development center that really helps the community but some of the projects, it was like your your client is a developer and do they care about who gets to live in those places and how long and that kind of thing? Like, is it, you know, a multifamily where 10% has to be affordable for the first five years and that's it? Like, that's not really 
free. And you get tax breaks. Like, it's ridiculous. Like it's- Yeah. I didn't get, when you're young, you don't get that. You're kind of like starry-eyed and you're like, okay, I want to do, for, I want to build for people who look like me. So affordable housing is the type of architect. I think I would look at architecture like types and not look at, you know, how you can, or like, yeah, I think doing that, kind of breaking through that mindset, that was the aha to be like, okay, this is how, how can I really impact the community? Working at that affordable housing firm, I realized that the community development group were the ones that were take, you know, the architect was taking the orders from them, design too. And I was like, wait, you're the architect, like, shouldn't you be in charge of the design? But they were very a design, that, that organization was very, very interested, intentional in everything about their own design. So they had all their ideas and if my boss wanted it to be a circle and the, the organization said, no, it's a square, it was a square. And I was like, I have to be the owner. Okay, so I have to be an owner to- To, to, to get the power, it's the power. Yeah, so I started thinking about how I can do that. And I think little breadcrumbs along the way kind of help form where my mindset is about the profession and just the professional realm in general, you know, the building, in construction and and ownership development world like it has definitely been a cumulative development of that knowledge and understanding and it still is i'm still learning so much i'm gonna fast forward a little bit you took a sabbatical what was that about <laughs> i just numbs up man no so my life goal is to build in Cape Verde Islands where my family's from. We migrated to the States in 1902. <laughs> so Cape, we, the Cape Verdean population is really high in New England. There's more Cape Verdeans in New England than in Cape Verde. So it's its own, it's like another, you know, extension of that, but there's- Pause for a second, why is that? Oh. It is, is it like, it just takes one and then everybody starts going. <laughs> well, I mean, kind of, but no. So like what happened was, so the Portuguese, so for my knowledge and the Portuguese, so the Portuguese owned Cape Verde. They were caught. That's who colonized Cape Verde. And before anywhere in Africa, that's the first European presence in Africa, like permanent presence was in Cape Verde. And that was like way before the transatlantic slave trade. This is like 14 something. So like 14, I don't know, 80s or something like that. I got to look. But yeah, so it was a long time before the rest of the continent got colonized. So they would, but it was a slave port. So they would take Africans from West Africa and other places and use it. And that was kind of like a stopping point before they decided to go to the North America, South America, everywhere. So they fought for their independence in the 19th. So, so okay, slavery abolished, fast forward. They were still citizens of Portugal. They were granted citizenship to Portugal. So they were really Portuguese citizens up until 1975. So a lot of, so there's more Cape Verdeans in Portugal too than in Cape Verde because they had that access, the ones that could, that had the money to, to go and do that. So then there was independence of all Lusophone, Cape African, which is uh, Portuguese speaking and Portuguese, you know, owned countries around Africa, Angola. They had a pact, Angola, Mo- Mozambique, 
Guinea-Bissau, all the kids. So there's actually multiple Portuguese speaking African countries, which when I started doing my research for Wheelwright, that's what I was, because I wanted to understand. So that was my first kind of, kind of delve into that. But anyway, so they got independence in 1975 and a lot of Cape Verdeans since, because they, because Portuguese, you know how like in Ellis Island, all these Europeans were coming to the United States. Cape Verdeans got to too, because they had Portuguese citizenship. Mm. So they were basically, you know, and it was more the light-skinned Cape Verdeans because they could pass as being Portuguese because Portuguese are more browner than other in like Spanish or in Italian, you know, this time in the South, they're a little bit more brown. So, I mean, if you have, you know, a hat or bonnet or <laughs> whatever, you could kind of pass. pass yeah. And then there was like, okay, come on, family. When they made money enough to come to the States, they brought their families so my great grandfather came over in 1902 he was a sharecropper or like a like in the so he worked in cranberry bogs i don't know i was laughing at that but he so it's just funny because like you don't you think of like sharecroppers like cotton and tobacco but is that up north they were like doing like cranberries and stuff like that ocean spray exactly but back then with ddt and all those chemicals they flooded the um, fields with and had the mm-hmm. chemical pesticide. So my grandfather actually had nerve damage from the neck down from working in flooded fields. So my grandmother had to take care of him and all her siblings because my my grandmother, my great grandmother, his wife left um, and went to California. So my grandmother took care of all her siblings and her dad. I don't remember where we started that conversation, but I, don't, I feel like I ended in a totally different place. No, no, no. Cause I asked you how did all like, Cause yeah, I, I went to school in Boston and it was, this is, this is literally the population, the black, you had the black Americans mm-hmm. and then you had Haitians. Yeah. Dominicans, like- Verdeans. Yeah. Those, those are the black people I knew. <laughs> so, yeah. And in New Bedford, the black people for the most, I mean, it's some African Americans like, and like I have uncles who are African American, right. Because they married my aunts and stuff, but the majority of black people I grew up with were Cape Verdean and then the white people were Jewish for the most part in, in New Beverly. So I, when I moved down South, like white people were like white people and, I, and then black people were like real black people. Black. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Cape are real black people. But I was like, Oh y'all for real black. Like this. <laughs> so it's funny. Cause I would always, I would grow up and they'd be like, what are you? And I'm like, I'm black. And they're like, no, you're not. You're not. <laughs> I'm like, yes, I am. Where are you from? Cape Verde. Where's that? Where is Africa. That? Why are you light-skinned from Africa? I don't know. I just am. <laughs> this, is, this is weird, though, because I, I had to go through something similar. Because when I was first started school, I had an accent. Because, you know, my mom's shit, I everybody's shit, and we all hang together. So I had an accent. I had a tricky accent. And all the kids would make fun of me, like, where are you from? And I was like, Trinidad, Where? where's that? I was like, it's an island. And they're like, and then I had to explain, it's an island off of Venezuela. And then they were like, where's Venezuela? I was like, God damn it. Get a map. <laughs> never mind. Never mind. Get it. I'm like, are you Spanish? Like, no, what the Spanish? Where'd you get that from? Yeah. Mm-mm. So anyway, I had to lose my accent. I had to, I had to assimilate. Oh, I did too from to the South anyway, because I was up north like, Mrs. So-and-so, can I go to the bubbler? Like... <laughs> I'm like what the heck is that? I'm like it's a, a bubbler. It's a water fountain. <laughs> oh, really? It's called the bubbler. Yeah. 
Oh, wow. I remember I was, I remember talking, there was a little boy who started school with us and he was really, he was country. And I remember like in the bathroom with my little girlfriends and being like, his voice is funny. And they were like, your voice is funny. What are you talking about? He talks, you're the one that's the weird one. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I humbled real quick. But yeah, I had to assimilate to being, so I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm in the weird, like I kind of don't have an accent, but I kind of have a country accent now. You do have a, yeah, yeah, you do. Living in the South for so long. Mm-hmm. You got a little twang. You got a little twang in this thing. Mm. So how how did you... Look, it was oh, you asked your super guy, Yeah, sabbaticals. Yeah, so... I was just frustrated at work. I felt like I was doing a lot of technical um, things, and I kept getting pulled from project to project because I guess, you know, that was the need at the time at the firms I was at. So... I never got to see a project to completion. It just was like, okay, well here, do, you know, do wall section. Cause I really, like I said, I really like details. I love wall sections and details and like, it's better than doing toilets. I really actually do enjoy, you know, building envelope stuff, but not all the time. Like I still wanted to be a designer and, and I just had like, you know, the typical microaggressions and things like that happening. So I, I saved up enough money at that, that last job that I had at a big firm in Austin and I was able to save and you know stack up a little bit so i said why not now why not go to cape bird now i want to build there one day but i have to at least see what it's like and get to know the people like that was such a need inside of my heart so i quit my job and i had just got licensed a year ago so like from that point from 2016 and then i left in 20s i quit my job in the end of 2017 and then I left to travel in January and then I didn't stop until January, 2019. So I basically traveled for a whole year, which it didn't, I didn't know it was going to be like that, but it just turned out that way. How was the planning of it? You had a plan. I think I saw the plan. You had a plan. There's somewhat of a plan there. Yeah, there was a plan-ish. <laughs> I really was like looking for flights to Cape Verde and then... I saw that you can fly to the connection flights. Because, you know, like, so if you have a one-point one destination, it's going to be a certain price. And then usually if there's a connection, it's cheaper. So I just started looking at the the connection flights individually. And I just made, like, a spreadsheet of, like, eight connections. With, it was like, okay, so Boston to Cape Verde is, like, $1,500. But Boston to... Portugal to Cape Verde is that's you know like a little cheaper so how much is Boston to Portugal and then how much is Portugal to Cape Verde individually and it ended up adding up to the same price so I was like well why don't I just and they had the same flights just um, every single week so I was like well why don't I just take that same flight the connection the next week and then I can spend a week in Portugal and I have friends, I have, and like you said, like I'm good at making connections and stuff. That's what, I feel like when you come from low income, like that's your bread and butter right there is connecting with people. That's how we used to survive in communities and stuff like that. So it's genuine. I like connecting with people. I like talking to people and knowing their stories and just them knowing my story. And, and it's actually Eileen, my best friend, her aunt lives in Portugal. So I stayed with her aunt and for a week out there. So that was cool. So what was then, your what was your travel? Do you remember? Like yeah, you know, so here, here, I went here, to here. London before that because I also looked at from Portugal to I mean sorry from Boston to Portugal, 
there was a botch into London to Portugal that was cheaper. And I was like, I've never been to London. I want to go there. <laughs> and this Cape Verdean, I was like, I've never, I, there's a, a Instagram account called Nasa Criola. We are Creole women. And it, it highlights Cape Verdean women around the world. Cause there's a Cape Verdean diaspora, like every, like in Europe, there's a lot of Cape Verdeans in Portugal, in uh, Amsterdam, like Rotterdam, Amsterdam, like Netherlands in general. Italy, like there's Kifredians literally everywhere. It's crazy. So she highlights different women from around the diaspora and and in Kiverd about like the wonderful things that they're doing. So I DM'd them on Instagram, was like, Hi, I'm going to Kiverd. I don't know anything. My family's been in the States forever. And she was like, Oh, message my personal account. So I talked to her and she's like, I actually don't live in Cape Verde. I live in London. I'm like, oh, that's my first stop. And she was like, oh, where are you staying? I was like, I don't know. She's like, she was like, girl, you crazy. You was like, <laughs> she was like, it's expensive here. Stay with me. So the same thing, like how you let me stay with you. She did the same thing. And, you know, it could have been like, this girl could be crazy, but it, it worked out. out. And then I stayed with her family, her brother and his family in, in Praia in Cape Verde. So I went from boston to where i stayed with my other friend from architecture school for a day and then london with isilda lisbon with eileen's aunt i went to canary islands i stayed in a, a hostel for nine dollars a night then cape Verde. i went to different islands there when i met people also online there's a rapper named butchart there <laughs> and i even if he follows me i think and i follow him and i was like oh i'm going to you know do you know? he was like oh i know another american cape verdian that's living in south Vicente. and that was like my first stop so i stayed with her when i got to south Vicente and the carnival it was it was amazing and then i stayed with her on uh, my friend's family i went to my islands fogo and i climbed a volcano an active volcano and then I took a boat to Brava, my mother's islands, and I stayed there and I searched for my family based on the family tree that my aunt gave me. I didn't end up finding anybody living, but I have some documents I'm still working on trying to find family. Then I went to Morocco. I went to, and I stayed with a friend that I met at Carnival who was from Morocco. <laughs> And then, so I went to Casablanca, I took the train to Marrakesh. And then after that, I went to Italy, but I had to do my, I had to do my taxes. So I didn't even leave my hotel when I was there because I missed my flight and I was only there for like a day. But I did get to walk, it was in this little city outside because I went to a smaller airport. I didn't realize it wasn't in Rome. It was like an hour from Rome. So I just stayed there, but I really, I loved the people in the hostel. It was like a apartment hostel. So they really lived there. So they were really nice and cool. There's this guy named Giuseppe who was like in love with me and he was like four feet tall. I remember that. And then, <laughs> uh, let's see, Italy, where else? Then I went to Paris. I lived in Paris for a month. Oh my God, this is crazy. I lived in Paris for a month because the girl who I met at Carnival, she's from, she's half Cape Verdean and half French and she lived there. So I stayed with her. And then Rotterdam, and Zandam, which is really close to Amsterdam. Then I went back to Paris, then I went to, oh, I went to the south of France, I went to Bordeaux, and then I went to Ethiopia. Oh, okay, so so at this point, so back when I was in Cape Verde, I was talking with Mike Ford, who's the hip hop architect, and he was taking, and I've done a camp with him. He does the hip hop architecture camps. 
and he was taking it to Kenya and I was already in Africa and I said and he was like oh I'm coming to Africa too like did it I'm like oh that's crazy we're just catching up and he was like well you should come I was like oh don't play with me you already know like I'm already <laughs> on the continent I will find a way a way to get to Kenya yes I will get there so I was like in my mind I strategized I said okay how can I get to Kenya which is probably easier from because I'm going to 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 Paris and then so I found flights first of all from Ethiopia Rwanda and Kenya it was the same thing like from Paris to Kenya and I broke down mm -hmm. the flight from Paris to Rwanda from Paris to Ethiopia to Rwanda and it was the same amount of it was like a hundred dollars to fly from Ethiopia to Rwanda so I spent like another 1500 so altogether my trip was three thousand dollars for the whole year yeah, and I was supposed to go from Paris to go to uh, Iceland, Reykjavik, and then go back home, well, to go to Toronto, and then I was going to take the bus to Massachusetts to see my family for the summer. So then I ended up canceling those tickets. I couldn't get my money back, but they were cheap, so I just ate it. And then, and then I went to Ethiopia, Rwanda, Kenya, and then I spent the, oh my gosh, how long were we there? I don't even remember. Just a three weeks or something like that. We went to Samburu and helped with the, the girls, Samburu Girls Group found, uh, Foundation. It's women, young women who are coming from local areas and villages that have experienced like different kind of outdated cultural practices that are harmful to the female body. So they come here to learn and get education and the the organization sponsors them but it's not like a european or american organization it's a kenyan organization the woman who started it she's a kenyan woman and she has her doctorate she's amazing so we went there and we did a hip-hop architecture camp but we also just spent time with them and stuff like that so that was like that was amazing that i just feel like my whole that year was just enchanted and i was like who is who do you think you are like doing all this stuff like i climbed a volcano and like hung out with young women from kenya and like <laughs> lived in paris for a month like what like it's amazing that that i this is why you're my mentor because that <laughs> whole journey like i would never if i at the age that you did that and compared to the age that I would have been if I was at your age when you were doing that. I was 28 because it was my golden, I called it my golden year because it was, I turned 28 on August 28th. Okay, so when I, back when I was 28 years old, I was, I was not thinking about traveling all of Africa and little parts of Europe. Like I was not in, no. And so when you, when you did that, that's like, how, how was the, first you, like language isn't language is difficult for me yeah so it's like you and but you grew up with that language like you no you, i didn't no i didn't so i learned it i forgot about that was it hard like was it yeah. it, <laughs> <laughs> it was really hard so no I one in your family spoke nobody in my family alive speaks cave uh speaks cave Verde creole nobody because they're taught to, to learn English because you have to get paid. You have to make money. You have to get a job. So they had to learn English. So my grandmother spoke it, but she wouldn't speak it, you know, all the time or anything. She was speaking when certain people came over the house and stuff like that. But my mother doesn't speak it. Like her and her sisters and brothers didn't speak it or anything. And same thing on my dad's side because they had to assimilate and learn 
American culture to survive, you know, and a lot of people from that generation that, that came over, they, they didn't keep it, unfortunately. So we, I knew certain words, like, and we cooked the food and, and we, I mean, my granddad used to listen to the music, had the old records and stuff, but no, we didn't know the language. So, and I'm just one more generation removed from it. And then mm -hmm. I grew up in North Carolina, so I really wasn't around any, because I could have went to Boston, because a lot of people in Boston, Cape Verde, they speak Creole, because there's like, I don't know, like they have more newer generations coming. But, and New Bedford is such an old community that like, you know, usually when Cape Verdeans would immigrate, they would go to Boston. So anyway, yeah, so I got a tutor when I was living in Austin, and she taught Brazilian Portuguese, but it was, I was like, close enough. <laughs> like, I need to learn <laughs> something like that's, you know, mm -hmm. in, in Creole is, our Creole is based in Portuguese and West African dialects. So I was like, at least I could get the pronunciations because it's so different than Spanish, like so different. <laughs> so, you know, she went over the alphabet and she went over certain, like just sentence formations and di different words and stuff. So it was just an easier transition when, so I bought a book that I think some university in Boston, they taught a Cape Verdean course. So this Cape, Ver this Cape Verdean man created a workbook. So I basically taught myself through the workbook and then when I lived there for three months, my friend, she speak, spoke English, but her brother and her brother did, but his family didn't. So, you know, most times he would be at work and I would be there with his wife and their kids and her sister. And none of them spoke English. So they, I had to learn, you know, and they were really, really good at teaching me too. Oh, Gotta be humble wow. at it because they're going to laugh at you every day and all the time. <laughs> but it was so fun. Like, so yeah, I learned what I, you know, I don't, I'm not fluent. I still want to take a, a course so I can become more fluent, but I can get by and connect with people. Cause I feel like you can't really connect with anybody if you can't speak their language. You can't speak their language, yeah. There for the most part. So mm -hmm. wow. I really learned how they live, how they structure their days, where they go to celebrate, where they go to mourn and what they eat and how they, you know, stuff like that and how they come together in community. And it was really from an architectural study standpoint, it was really fascinating, but it was also my culture and seeing similarities and how they, their personalities are to people in my family and even seeing doppelgangers for people in my, that was weird. Like being like, oh my God, that is my brother. Like that dude See, looks That's just, me right like, there, yeah. It's so weird, but it was really, I mean, it filled my heart. And I, I feel like I struggled so much growing up and going through architecture school and starting in the profession. Like, and I had a lot of trauma associated with that. Like growing up was really, really difficult, but I just felt like it was all you know, made worth it with that trip. Like it almost like was like a solve that just healed all of that, or at least began the healing internally. You know, it takes time, but it really was like, wow, I deserve this. Like, that's amazing. You know, you came back a different person. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So you're, you're back in the States. You're like, oh, sleeping <laughs> on a soft bed. Like that was. Oh yeah. That's funny. Not taking bucket showers anymore. Yeah. Not yeah. <laughs> Living in living in a backpack. Water out the tap. Yeah, I, I used the same backpack for four months. I used four. I only wore four outfits for four months of my life, or five months of my life. <laughs> and I was in all kinds of different climate climates. I had to make it work. Like put all of the clothes I had on <laughs> in the cold climates. 
I didn't think that through. I didn't think that through. <laughs> I gotta go. <laughs> so you came back, and what was the game plan when you came back? Get a job because I'm broke. <laughs> <laughs> No, so I came back and I still had a little bit. Oh my gosh, this is how you know you're 28. So like, <laughs> I was just like, I'm just gonna make a strike and still go because I really wanted to do my. I found okay. So when I was in Cape, actually right before I left for Cape Verde, me and my friend Stacy, my best friend, she works with unaccompanied youth, and she had this idea, and I had the architecture side, and, and we we just kind of came up with this community uh, program and development idea called the livelihood neighborhood so it would take kids from 8 to 20 I think 20 years old and for, that have unstable housing situations and like we went through like okay what are the levels and stages of unstable housing like how does it go from like least secure to most secure you know I'm just doing kind of design exercises behind it and I created a, a present when I was in Cape Verde I created a presentation for it and I sent it to her and then she was presenting it to people and like that was my passion so that was what i just knew in my heart like that's what was gonna go like that's what i'm gonna do now and i started my firm in the same year archidev llc and i did like two small projects i got invited to speak so i just thought i could like handle like living and also building this thing at the same time so i was living in new york i lived in new york in new jersey for I think a month or a month and a half with friends. And then I went back to North Carolina. I stayed with my mom for like four months. And and then I was like, all right, it's time to <laughs> look for a job because this isn't, you know, it was like, I didn't have enough of foundation to launch. So, you know, I talked to Stacey and I was like, this is, I can't do this right now. Like I really need to provide for myself to build, like, you know, when you don't have net worth, like the money that you save, that goes by really quick. Like if mm -hmm. you don't have anybody, you know, providing any type of foundation for that financially, and you're your own financial foundation. Yeah. Especially with all the travel and stuff like that. I was like, I got debt to pay off. Like I got to figure this out. So, but before I did that, I actually just went to visit my sister in Florida because she has my nephew and she just got her associate's degree and got a job, but the job shift was till like 10 p.m. And he was only 11 at the time and would be home by himself for a really long time. So I was like, well, I could, you know, I'm still moving around doing my thing. So let me come down there, help out. So I did that. I happened to apply to a couple jobs in the local area while I was there. And then I got a job as a design a project designer and I was like what I can get a job me a project designer whoa like this is what I've always wanted like I come back it's full circle and it just didn't look how I thought it was gonna look like I was in Photoshop every day changing Publix grocery stores facades from one you know one brick to a different color brick and I was like every single day and I did get to design a pretty cool brewery on my own because it was a huge development that they had to design several projects on and they really just it was like oh we can't you know just do something and I did the most and they loved it the client loved it but they didn't tell me that the client loved it and then they took the guy who sat next to me with the associate's degree to all of the meetings and all of the, you know, I never got to get hands on or in, like, it was like, there's just, they didn't want, like, I can't, I'm not a desk jockey. I'm not just going to sit at my desk. Like if I design something that is you like and the client likes, and I can't even interface with that client, you know, and it's kind of like a catch 22 for firm owners because you're like, okay, you're new here. But at the same time, if you don't respect me enough to include me, 
then I got to go. So, you know, I can't just sit around and wait and there's no plan. There's no conversation about your plan for me. You're just telling me to hold tight. Sorry. I don't have, I don't put my trust in, in a company that I can't do it. So I had to go. Then I was working in building envelope for a while here. And then I started Afrospace. So Afrospace, what's that? <laughs> oh, you know what that is. <laughs> I think anybody else knows what that is. What's Afrospace, Devin? <sighs> Afrospace is my baby. It's my little tiny baby, and I love it so much. Afrospace is a startup, a brick and mortar startup, hopefully. <laughs> it's a place where natural hair women and people with diverse identities can go to do their own hair. It's like a DIY natural hair lounge. So there's a product bar when you walk in and you create your own product that is, or like, you know, a custom product from a menu that is catering to your specific hair needs. And natural hair has all kinds of different factors that make your hair look and act how it does. So you know, different hair requires different combinations. So it's kind of like customization, a customization bar for your specific hair needs and then offered at the lowest cost on the market because natural hair care that is actually all whole ingredients is hella expensive. So I wanted to run a model to see how we could provide it at a cheaper cost because I think clean hair care should be accessible for all of us. And I really, my, my target audience is Black women from all different backgrounds. And you know, we are the most underserved for the most part in the country. So, and that means the lowest, with the, with the lowest socioeconomic status. So I wanted it to any Black girl, any Black woman to be able to walk in there and feel welcomed. So there's no membership. There's a VIP membership if you so choose, but just to walk in and get a product, you know, I wanted to model it similar to like a coffee shop where if you, you know, if you broke, but you just need a cup of coffee, you can get the cheapest coffee on the menu. And like, if you're studying for your AREs and you need, you know, a $2 cup of coffee, plant like a drip cup from Starbucks, which is their cheapest offering. I know that very well. <laughs> <laughs> and you could do that or you could go crazy and treat yourself and get, you know, $20, $30 products, whatever. So it's just a place in that to protect our mental health and our, and our, our ideas and our, you know, our energy that we put into our ventures that we want to start because I think black women are very entrepreneurial and enterprising and sometimes we just need space and support. So this Afro space, so I would walk in looking for a shampoo, conditioner, like, or is it? So we have six, well, five projects going on. And one of those projects is is our project product creation plan. So right now I'm in between deciding, like, are we going to do more topical, not topical, but is that topical? But like, um, like hair masks and rinses and things that are more like if you have problem issues with your hair or like the treatments that you would do like weekly to monthly, like you would only do a protein treatment once a month, but it would be like a, a juice that you would get at a juice bar where it would have these different natural ingredients that we blend up in and give you, or will we have, you know, something more substantial like your LOC, you know, but I'm like, can you make a natural <laughs> leave-in conditioner or are you going to go with not today? I'm going to go with not today. Cause that is the best leave-in conditioner there is period. 
So I don't know if it would be more treatments and kind of like a hair spa in that sense, like the things that you need to show your hair a little bit more love when you deep. So we might do deep conditioners, hair masks, oil treatments, like different oil combinations. So we're still figuring out what those offerings are on the bar. And then we're also doing a product merchandising. So it will be kind of like a mini, like if you could go to a beauty supply store that was just for naturals, that's what we're going to have, like a little store aspect of it as well for just additional stream um, of income for the shop. And I do want to franchise because I, the, I originally approached this like, you know, the design problem of how do we create space for Black women and how do we create economic opportunities for Black women so, you know, that's creating a job lane of a skill that we already have, but it's not a skill that you get paid for unless you're going to beauty school and then going to a salon to do professional styles. But even, you know, naturals, we only go to the salon maybe once a month. I don't ever go to the salon, but, you know, for the naturals that do go to the salon, it might be once a month, you know. So I wanted this to be a habitual space that you could go every day if you wanted to mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. So can't wait. I can't, I can't either. I can't either. But yeah, I want to provide job opportunities there and then opportunities for ownership eventually. So right now I'm looking at starting a property and then we're going to do a, a pop-up tour once everything, you know, with COVID and everything is safe to do that and thinking about ways to do it outside. And, you know, we're kind of in this brainstorming phase and I'm still kind of creating what it, what it is. We have an investor, which is awesome. But at the same time, it's still really early. So I still want to make sure that I know the ethos of the company language figured out and, you know, what all we really want this to be. So I really have to figure out what it is. Oh, excuse me. What it isn't to figure out what it is. And that that part is kind of hard because it's like when you're going down a lane of trying to understand information. And then you realize that information doesn't apply to you, but you already like spent a day reading about it. Like, I feel like, you know, that stuff, you have to like rely and be like, okay, I learned this for a reason. One day it will come to be, you know, come into the reasoning, but right now it doesn't. But, but you always get like kind of a little cookie crumb on that, on that path that you kind of proceeded to go down. Like for, for REITs, I was learning about REITs because I was like, oh, I can create a real estate investment trust. I can get a hundred people to invest and, you know, then we can put a down payment on first property. So that's all well and good, but there's a lot of fees that are associated with REITs, but that goes back to looking at your networks. I went back to good old LinkedIn and (laughs) I searched REIT and I found somebody with mutual connections and also a a black person because we're more likely to help out each other. So I just reached out to him and said, Hey, could I, you know, can I bother you with a 20 minute conversation? I'm looking to form a REIT. And, you know, we talked for, I don't know, like an hour. I have notes on it. He was saying all kinds of things I don't understand. sound like a different language. But he also told me about like syndication, like property syndication or real estate syndication, which is probably a better first step because REITs, you know, you want to have kind of, a, he's like, you know, look at your first, once you got three properties and you can sell those to the REIT, but you know, maybe you could start with a syndicate and I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, great. That sounds good. I don't know what syndicate is. So I was like, let me read, let me research that a little bit. So it's just like little piece by piece kind of building it. And I always have second guesses, but it, like as an entrepreneur, it's crazy. I'm like, have I, you know, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? It's so different than architecture, but I'm using all the skills that I acquired in architecture for design strategy to create this business. 
hopefully when we get to outfit spaces, that's when I can, you know, it's more interior design, but maybe we could do some additions or remodels and things like that. And I already got the stamp. Um, <laughs> so I can do yeah. that myself. So yeah, it's just taking it a day at a time, but it's exciting. And I do always have to realize like I'm living like, you know, I'm doing it right now. You right now. It's, it. it's not. Yeah. And, and that's not. Hard you're always an inspiration to me because it's like I was I won't say stuck but I never thought of well let me put it this way my sister I, I use my oldest sister for example she worked at the same job for like the past 25 years that's what I thought that my path would be I will be working at an architecture firm for forever whether you're happy or sad or mad or whatever you just you just stay there till you die and you keep reinventing yourself you keep asking yourself is this enough for me and that's what life is about I'm glad that you emailed me I'm glad that you hooked me up at LinkedIn because to see your progress to see how you just keep improving yourself to keep, you ask yourself a question and then you go 110% and try to find the answer to it. And it's, it's, it's why I have this podcast. It's because of you. Like, cause I asked myself a question, like why did I get into architecture? And start to really start investigating and it's, you know, it's because of you. And you put the travel bug in me. Like, I before, I never thought about traveling, like, leaving the United States. I never thought of that. But you like, I'm going to find out who I am. And I'm like, let me ask you find out who I am. And, you know, it's it's little seeds that you plant. And I don't know where your seeds come from. I but, you know, your stories, your, your random texts, like, you're like, oh, you random calls. You're like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to move to Antarctica. <laughs> I think I need to save the penguin, so I'm going to. <laughs> and that's the thing. Like, I think it's all connected, too. I honestly just take my, and, like, and I'm spiritual. Like, I think you got to, whatever your source is, like, you got to hone in on that. And honestly, I think if I had a stronger tied to my family like I have it's I have a bond to my family like no other like Cape Verdeans Cape Verdeans you don't even know when you meet them that's your family so Cape Verdean family I think we're used to going across you know the, the water and then having to send money back and then over 10 years and then you get to see you know it takes like it's it's like that and so I think because my mom moved us away from the family and stuff like that it's just I never had the security to feel like this is something that it's not holding me back, but holding me down, you know, like I never was really held, held down directly. So it's like, I can do what I was just up there. And, but I do feel like it was all connected. Like I, the question that I asked, you know, I'm not just pulling my, I pull them out of a, a box and they're all random. Like they're informed by the last answer that I got from the question I asked. So it's, I, I think like some people from the outside in can look at my journey and look at it as really <laughs> just like all over the place. But I do feel like everything I've done and everything I've learned, it's all cumulative. I think it's all leading up to the same 
things because learning about the built environment, like I'm thinking about Afrospace, like, okay, I can think to do this community center, but have I lived in a community for like 10 years or even five years or two years where I'm going to, you know, take the time to get to know the, and like participate on these council boards and think, and some people go that route and I just haven't gone that route. So I'm thinking of it in a different way. Like how can I create capital? How can I create generational wealth for myself and other people's families? Because once I make money on Afrospace, I'm going to pour that into Cape Verde. I'm going to pour that into Fayetteville. I'm going to do what I can. And even in like, and with Afrospace is doing that is creating a space for us. And if that's what architecture is, is creating spaces where people can express. And like, that's what we learned in school. I remember, I think it was, oh my God, Le Corbusier. I think I used him as a precedent project. And he talked about like the project he did in India and, and, you know, it was creating a more than the, the function of the building was a government building, but the, you know, the way that he designed the space was for experience so that people could feel that they could, they could be expressed. And, you know, my first location might be in the shopping center, but it doesn't always, like, if you have the humility to think about your practice of architecture in a different way and really put it back to the people um, who you're serving and not necessarily, you know, the, the prestige of it all, because, you know, we never serve us. We never get a chance. Like architecture has never, this is the only way that architecture has touched my life. Personally, in my personal life, no, architecture has never touched my life. In my friend's life, my homegirls, my homeboys from back home, architecture has not touched their lives. Like, and I want an architect who I am, which is the knowledge that I've gained through architecture to be able to, you know, smartly and strategically create spaces for them like that's my goal and if I can do that then I'm a good architect that's that's some deep shit you just said two things one I never like that 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 Antarctic example wasn't meant to no I didn't it. mean you I meant people you're, like I didn't like mean. like you're so you know no no it was it that was not it it's is the fact that you when you discover something about yourself or about anything it's like i want to explore this deeper and it it the deepness benefits you that's why you're doing it and it, and it benefits it'll, it'll eventually benefit your community and your because that's everything you've done is not only for yourself but the core of it is the community your your family or your 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 environment or you know like why we all get into it. and the second part of it too is architecture like you're absolutely right like architecture has never i don't want to say never done anything for us but it's 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 like why i mean has it though like if you think about it has it and I even mean, in the profession we get i mean because you know how real we gonna get you know what i mean like in our personal life you grew up in 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 poverty you know yeah i went to a school that was designed by an architect but you know what i mean like it has it ever other than things like you know there's government buildings there's you know there's hospitals but have what's our access to healthcare like what has our access to education been like what has our access to civil servants through politics and things like that been like not all good experiences so you know what i mean like it's like as a whole I can't affect that. I can't change the system of racism, but I can systematically create a counter system. Will it be as big and impactful? No, <laughs> but can I create a system? Like I am thinking about it systematically. I wasn't thinking of, oh, I'm gonna build this one space. Like I'm thinking of Afrospace as being a franchise 
you know, even globally, because there's black women everywhere and 80% of black women have natural hair and it's only growing. Nobody's doing relaxers anymore. Like that's a thing of the past and no shame to them. They could come up in the space too. You won't get a relaxer here, but you can nourish your scalp, <laughs> which you need as well. You probably need it more, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not to exclude anybody and it's not to exclude, you know, non-black women. Like it's, if you have a child that has natural hair and you don't know what the heck to do with it, come on through, we'll have a class, you know, or you can get a consultation. And, stuff and that's like the that. big thing. Like we, yeah. we're, we are rediscovering our hair all the time right Our hair texture changes as we get older it does. You know? and you know the the and then when you have a child their hair texture is not your own hair texture you right. know Even when you have a child your hair texture changes when you change climates your hair texture changes <laughs> like there's so much to our hair like i'm growing i've cut my hair 10 years ago for the first time and i had locks and then i had an afro and then i cut i did a taper and now and then i did a buzz and now i'm growing it back out and my texture is totally different than it was. And in Florida, it's definitely different. So, and it requires different products and different seasons. It requires different products. So it's, it's crazy. I think there's a market there. And if we think about it like that, you know, I, there's definitely a market there and there's a need for this sense of community. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how pan, things pan out with the pandemic. But, you know, I think it's, it's a space. It's a new, it's a new, and if I really like gas it, it's a new typography you know what i mean like it's mm -hmm. it's a new typology i mean it's a new space a new type of space this is not something it's not a salon it's not a lounge it's 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 a space for black women that actually can be profitable it's not like a house like how can we do this without getting you know or totally relying on community sponsorship or sponsorship from the government or other large companies like how can this be self-sustained how can this create profit enough to make it its own engine mm -hmm. and i think thinking about it like that with a you know capitalist lens i guess you could call it or a business lens is what is gonna you know set it apart from from businesses that we don't you know that fail because mm -hmm. i think we're really strong in, like in food industry and we're strong in you know personal care industry and things like that but a lot of that is kind of transactional but i'm like what kind of how can we have public space where you feel comfortable where you don't feel like you have to look over your shoulder where you don't have to feel judged even when you are you're a confident person and you don't ever feel judged like maybe you don't have to access so much of that confidence here you can just be yourself maybe you don't have to put on that armor maybe this is a space where you can disarm and really take out your hair like that's such a a personal thing to do and to be able to do that in public I think that's powerful I think that your hair is your crown and I've never cut my hair like I've never I never done a TWA like I never done that and I I don't know how I would react if I didn't have my hair yeah and versus you you cut your hair <laughs> your hair you're like it's a transformation yeah and so you totally have to redefine how you look at yourself inside mm -hmm. and outside mm -hmm. because when you look at yourself from the outside it's how you feel about yourself on the inside so you're changing how you're looking on the outside but you're like 
that wasn't me really like that isn't really me and i think it even helps when you know because when you're aging and you're getting older and great i'm 31 but i'm gonna be 61 one day and i talk to my mom and stuff like that and you you're constantly always having to look at yourself through a new lens i heard um a woman she was an activist from like a black panther activist and she was i can't remember her name but she was saying like, you know, every 10 years I start, you know, looking at my, I have to redefine myself, like how I look at my, you know, my face and my, and my breast and my body and my, you know, and who I am all to on the inside too. And I think when you cut your hair, it's kind of like getting a piece of that in a way, like it not, you can, it's not by force. It's not like, oh, my body's changing and I have to react to it. It's like, I'm changing something that's essentially part of my body and I'm, I know it's going to be a journey and I'm agreeing to this journey. I don't know what's going to happen. There's going to be bad days. There's going to be good, good days. There's going to be days where I'm like, I look crazy. <laughs> there's going to be days I'm like, okay, all right. <laughs> Even though I just washed my hair, I didn't do nothing to it. It's just washed, it's wet still. I think it takes a lot more for different people. I think somebody who has 4C hair, it takes a whole lot. I'm not, it's, I think it takes a lot for anybody but I think if you have a different hair texture, if you have a different skin color, it takes more. Like if I was dark skin with a 4C hair texture and did a big chop to, to understand that confidence and to really, and granted, you know, you could have traumas in your past. So if you were never supported or told you were beautiful when you were young as a light skin person, but you were dark skin and you were, then, you know, we don't know how that measures out, but I just know from a societal standpoint, like I can only imagine how how difficult that would be to gain back a confidence in feeling beautiful from the outside and powerful and like secure and professional and all those things when you have a much um, coarser texture, you know, cause I have like 4A, 3C, 4A texture and you know, peanut butter skin. <laughs> so if I was dark chocolate or had a 4C hair texture, you really have to know yourself and be confident in yourself and and how you perceive yourself and how nobody else does and i still have to do that but i think you know you have a little i don't care what society thinks about it but at the same time is that a privilege to not really care you know what i mean like because because i know it will you know be accepted to a certain you know more acceptable degree because literally if I take a, if I wet a brush and I do this, this is going to lay down and look like Ricky Martin. I don't know why I said Ricky Martin, but <laughs> Ricky Martin. I know why I said Ricky Martin. That's just the name that came to my head. I don't think I look like Ricky Martin. <laughs> I am living the Libida Loca. Loca. <laughs> no idea. Jennifer Lopez? Are you trying to put that oh no i don't know why i think because i like you know you slick it down maybe i feel like ricky when i do that i was like whoa <laughs> it don't stay like that for long but i just know you know and i know when it gets longer and things like that those are the curls that you know white people would be like oh my god i love your curls but like you know if it's a real nappy afro not everybody's gonna give you those say they'll look at you like what you know what i mean but you got to be in charge of that you know mm -hmm. and take it it's hard it's hard and i use nappy as a not as a derogative word i think that's it we've we've taken that word back and <laughs> empowered it just like other yeah other like, words that start other, other n words out there other n words <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness so what's next for you besides afro space 
I am taking it a day at a time. So I think I might do a part-time job, continue to work on Afrospace. There is really nothing besides Afrospace. Like that's, that's the goal. That's your baby. That's, that's, that's my baby. I'm looking at properties. We're going to do our, our crowdfund campaign soon. I was going to launch at the end of the month, but I'm not a hundred percent sure about that. So. Is Afrospace on Instagram or is this on Facebook? Yeah, it's on Instagram. It's Afrospace official. And then our website is afro.space. So super simple. But our, yeah, Instagram is at Afrospace official. Can I take a second to just say I'm really inspired by you and proud of you for doing this podcast? Like, that's amazing. Especially because I know you anti. (laughs) (laughs) You a little bit anti. And just stepping out of your comfort zone to be record your own voice and have these conversations live and or not live, but you know what I mean. And like, that's awesome. And you're you're moving the needle. Thank you. <laughs> it's inspiring. And you got like a thousand something followers, and you're only like following like not even close to that. I was like, oh, excuse me. I know it's so weird that people are listening to me they're listening to you I was somebody it was a person I used to work with that added me on uh, Instagram and she was like oh yeah I saw you were on the architecture's political podcast because you posted the the video from the conference that we were doing and I'm like yeah that's my friend and then another person says something about it in the we're in this group chat and i'm like yeah melissa is my first mentor like that and i told him that story too i think it was ellen did you talk to oh, ellen? Yeah, ellen yeah 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 i didn't listen to that one yet but yeah so she i was like yeah me and melissa go way back way back way back it's sad how how old we are <laughs> exciting it's great i just can't believe it it's been that long being old people are great they're cute they got health issues i can't i can't wait for the younger people to say oh yeah look at melissa and them and they're cute because they're old as hell yeah look at these cute little old people old people i'm getting the old people net i'm looking at myself stop it I am too, though, when I turn. You look so much like your mother. When you were talking, I was just like, wow. Dream peanut, baby. Okay, okay, so let me wrap up. Okay. (laughs) Thank you so much, Devin, for coming on. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating this show. And it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week. But it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S. P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins. 
and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash archespoly, all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today. <laughs>